If you've got a Bible, let's get going. Would you grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 4, where we are going to be looking at the building of the first city. Now, uh, if you're like me and you grew up in a city, this might sound kind of strange to you. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there was a time before there were cities. Uh, There was... um, There is a time where, uh, and there are still places like this in the world today where people are just, they're all spread out. And so what that means is there's not a Starbucks on every corner um, where if you want, I know, I know, uh, if you want your latte in the morning, you have to go out and milk your own cow. Um, And I'm not even sure what you do for the coffee, um, but there's no electricity either. And so you probably went to bed at a decent hour. You might not even need the coffee. Um, But the point is, there are places in the world that are like this. But what we're going to see in our text today is, I'm really within a generation of leaving the Garden of Eden. Humans start clustering together and building these things called cities. Um, And from this point onward, cities will begin um, to play an important role in human history. From the first city we're going to read about in the text today to Babylon that we're going to see as we kind of wrap up this chunk of Genesis at the end of the year, um, on to the city of Athens and Rome and on and on. You could go to London and Beijing. Um, Cities impact the world. And what's really interesting, this has always been the case from Genesis 4 onward for thousands of years, but what's particularly interesting about the moment in human history that you and I find ourselves living in is we live in a moment where um, it's not just a few great cities in the world, but there is a movement of the whole world towards cities where um, we are living in a moment of rapid urbanization where uh, in 1900, only 14% of the world's population lived in a city. Um, By the year 2011, this is now 10 years ago, um, for the first time uh, we entered this place in human history where the majority of the people alive on the planet now live in a city. Um, And in fact, if you move and just kind of cut out the whole world and if you just want to talk about kind of developed nations, uh, what you'll find is today three quarters of people living in developed nations uh, live in an urban center or live in a city. And the question is, um, is this move towards urbanization that we're seeing um, at warp speed going on around us, is this move towards the city a good thing? Um, Now, you might say, no. Maybe you just don't like traffic. Um, Maybe you miss the good old days when it was all orchards around here. I know some of you remember that and have told me about that. So maybe you go, this move towards urbanization, no, it's not a good thing. I miss it. Others of you might say, of course it's a good thing. I love my lattes. I love that there's a Starbucks on every corner. But regardless of your answer, let me ask you this. Is your answer biblically based? Um, Because, see, here's the thing. Uh, We've seen this throughout the series. We have all sorts of assumptions about life, right? Um, and, and we all kind of have this worldview that um, is, uh, if you grew up in the church, maybe a mixture of the Bible and the world, or if you didn't grow up in the church, the Bible's totally new, but um, the reality is no human has perfect assumptions about the world, and if you've lived long enough, you know that's true. You know that you have had ideas and assumptions about how things operate that maybe it works out sometimes, but if you could be really honest, and um, if you're under the age of 30 in the room, you'll just have to believe me on this, but if you live long enough, you'll get to a point in life where you find that your assumptions about what are good will actually lead to great harm. 
that you might not know everything. And so what we've been doing in this series is we have been going back to the beginning of the human story um, and really getting God's view on these essential aspects of life to understand, okay, we are finite. We might have this perspective, but what does our creator say? How did we get here? What are we for? What's the purpose of a city? What's the nature of a city? How should we think about these things? And so when I ask, is the movement towards urbanization a good thing? Um, I hope your answer is, let's go to Genesis chapter 4 and find out. Uh, uh, Because that's what we're going to see in the building of the first city. Um, What we're going to see in this text is we're going to see the essential nature of human cities. And then what we're going to see is just like every other week in this series, things might surprise us. But when God tells us something, he tells us things in order to line us up with life as it is made to be. And so whatever we have in the text before us, here's what we should know by this point in Genesis. God has written this to lead us into life so that as we live in this day of urbanization, we might approach this in such a way that brings about the most human flourishing possible. Are you ready? All right. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. It says this. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahalalel. Mahalalel fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. Now, Lamech, he took two wives, which, depending on your perspective, is one or two too many. Um, Now, I I actually point that out because um, this is the first polygamist in the Bible. Um, And if you want to know what does God think about polygamy, um, pay attention to what the text says about Lamech today. Genesis is going to do this again and again and again. Is It's going to say, hey, you know the founder of those people or those ideas? Well, look at him. Do you want to emulate him? So anyway, if you're wondering from a couple weeks ago, polyamory, is this going to be a good idea for humanity? Pay attention to Lamech today. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. He thinks he's very important. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. So that's the story of the first city, folks. Uh, what we see in this story, we'll unpack it, uh, is that the story of the first city is uh, really a story of great good and great evil. Um, and, and let's start by talking about the good. Um, What's crazy to me is that anything good comes out of this story, because uh, where we picked it up in verse 17, it all starts with Cain. Um, Now, quick quiz, or quick review for those who weren't here last week. Is Cain a good guy or a bad guy? Bad guy. Uh, Cain, this is, uh, Pastor Larry did a great job leading us through that story last week, where um, Cain shows up to church with an offering in his hand and hate in his heart, and when God calls him on it, saying like the Lord Jesus will later echo, um, that it doesn't matter what you're doing on the outside if your heart ain't right, 
Uh, Cain gets really mad at that, um, and because he can't kill God, he kills his brother. And, and so uh, Cain, not a super great dude, um, he flees uh, from there. He moves east of Eden, which this movement eastward in the book of Genesis, it's really a movement away from God and away from his presence. So the farther east you go, the farther away you are from God. And so Cain, he moves east of Eden. Um, the people will eventually go east to Babylon. They'll continue on eastward uh, towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and eventually they get all the way eastward to California. It just gets worse and worse and worse and farther from God and farther from God and farther God. And and, and here's the point. Um, Cain is, he's not a good dude. He's running from God. He murdered his brother. But here's what I want you to see in this story. God gives good gifts even to evil people. Uh, The way Jesus will say it is that God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, Cain is running from God, he's moving east of Eden, and as he is, he meets a girl, and they fall in love, and they have a child. Uh, that's a good gift. And, and, and then, you know, Cain goes, okay, I want to get something special for my boy. What am I going to do for him? And, um, you know, all the t- typical baby gifts, that was just, he, he was maybe the first hipster. He's like, I don't want to get what all my friends are getting. I want to give them something original. So I'm going to pull all of these humans together, and we together will build this thing called a city. And so that's the gift that he gets for his boy. And um, apparently building the city took a while because um, five generations pass in verse 18, Um, And these are people that live hundreds and hundreds of years. So a long time passes while Cain is building this city. um, And you move from, uh, let me pull up some of the names here. I I do apologize, I don't have uh, the Hebrew phone book here memorized. Um, But you go from uh, Cain, um, then to uh, Enoch, and then from Enoch to Irad, and then he moves on to a couple of M names that like rhyme but don't. Um, and, and you're moving on and on and on all the way until you get to this winner named Lamech at the end of verse 18. So you get five generations while he's building this city. And I promise we really will talk about Lamech in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to talk about Lamech's kids because that's where the narrative really slows down. So after the fifth generation, you get to Lamech, and it's his kids where we really see some detail about what happens in the city. Um, In verse 20, we meet a man named Jabal. Now, he is the father of all of those who tend to livestock. Um, If you were here last week, we saw that Abel was a keeper of sheep. This word for livestock is a broader word. Um, This would include goats and cattle. And so what we are seeing uh, with this man Jabal is in the first city that human culture is developing. That now they not only have sheep, but they have goats and cattle. So they're um, developing agriculture. Um, They are just, use your holy imagination. This might mean cheeseburgers, all right? They don't just have sheep. They've got goats. They've got cattle. Um, Everything is developing. Did I hear an amen over here on the cheeseburger thing? Anyway, um, so human culture is developing here in the city, and it tasted, I'm sure, very, very good. Um, And then in verse 21, it's not just food. We meet a guy named Jubal. Um, Imagine trying to tell these kids apart in school. Jabal? No, I said Jubal. No, which one is it? Okay, so Jubal is the brother of Jabal, and he is uh, the father of those who play the lyre, um, which is a, like, kind of like a stringed instrument, like a harp, um, and the, uh, the flute, the pipe. Um, and, and, and so if I could just put that in modern terminology, he invented the guitar and the drums. 
Uh, he's the first musician. He's the father of it all. And so whether it came about uh, many centuries BC or whether it came about fairly recently, I don't know when the guitar was invented. Um, I think men have been beating things ever since history, so drums are probably very, very old. But the idea is this guy's the first musician. He invents instruments, he invents singing and music, and so here in the city you've got now not only um, good food uh, and agricultural development, but you have the arts beginning to develop, and music, and song, and instruments to make the heart glad. Um, So this city, it's looking pretty good. They've got a five guys and a rock and roll joint. Um, I might go visit this city. It's sounding pretty great so far. Um, And then finally, we meet a guy named Tubal Cain. Now, he's the first one to ever make tools in human history. So, um, any of you have tools? Any of you like your tools? I think I heard the spouse of someone who has tools laugh just now. Uh, uh, This is the original Tim Taylor here. You can say thank you to Tubal Cain for the tools that you have. Some of you, you don't like tools, you don't have tools, you don't understand the reference to Tim Taylor. Um, Here's what I'll ask you. Do you like indoor plumbing? Because it took tools to build that. All right, so you, you too can thank Tubal Cain. This is, uh, um, we're seeing incredible developments in um, uh, maybe architecture and tools and building. And here's the big idea, what we're seeing in all of these names. There's all this good stuff happening in the city. Human culture is developing, the food is getting tastier, the arts are developing, there's now tools to build more efficiently and skillfully. But at the same time we see, so this is where I said the first human city, it's a mixture, there's great good there, but at the same time as we see all of this, there is great evil in the city there. And this is where we'll come to our boy Lamech. Uh, so he says, if you want to look at it again in verse 23, Lamech says to his wives, Adah and Hillah. Hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Um, Do you hear the pride in there? This guy thinks he's a very big deal. If I talk like this at home, you'd have to find a new pastor because Karen will be convicted of murder. Um, This would not fly in my home. But this guy, you know, he thinks he's a big deal. He's, you know, he's, I mean, to talk about the polygamy thing, we said it a few weeks ago, we're finite beings. He thinks he's not. He thinks he's worthy of two lifetimes and two people. I mean, this guy just, wives of Hillel, listen to what I have to say. Um, So he's very proudful. Um, He's very prideful. Um, Not unlike a certain serpent that we met a couple of weeks ago that thought he was smarter than God, that tried to rebel against God. Um, Lamech is kind of following in the way of this serpent who thinks he's a bigger deal than he really is. And like comes from the serpent, we see a lot of destruction coming from this man, Lamech. He says this, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. Um, Here's what I'll say about that. Uh, we don't know the exact circumstances of these scenarios. Um, But what we can deduce from that is apparently that there's violence going on in the city. Um, Like maybe you could argue, well, maybe the man wounded him by accident. Maybe he meant with words like sticks and stones. You know, those can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, except we all know that's not true. And maybe he was wounded with words. You could maybe argue that one, although I think that's a very modern argument. I don't know that you can argue the striking him one. Um, I don't know of a lot of circumstances where a fist just accidentally flies into another person's face um, without the intent to strike them um, to do that. 
And so what, what we're learning from Lamech's song, we don't know the full story. I'm sure those guys have a story to tell. Like, well, the reason I popped Lamech is because he showed up to the bar and tried to pick up a third wife for my wife. And I'm like, bro, you've already got one too many. Get out of here. And I punched him. We don't know the story. What we know is there's violence in the city. What we know is people are sinning against one another. Um, and, and Lamech, here, here's what he does is, he, he takes things into his own hands. He says, I don't like being hit. That does not seem right that you hit me. And so what he does is he kills the guy. That's how Lamech deals with the sin problem. He's like, people run around hitting each other, so I'm just going to kill anyone that makes me mad. This guy's insane. This would be like if someone cut you off in traffic and you followed them to their home and you slashed their tires, broke all their windows, and then lit the car on fire at the end. Now, some of you have thought about doing that. But Lamech actually did it. There's just no proportionality here. It's complete injustice where for a small infraction, he ends someone's life, an image bearer no less. Uh, and, and, and we're meant to look at this with horror. Like, what is going on in this city? People are sinning against one another, hitting one another. And then this Lamech guy is a particular level of crazy where he responds to the slightest insult with murder and death and violence. And the crazy thing is he not only does these things, he actually brags about it. So I want you to just back up a few verses. Last week we saw Cain killed his brother. At least he was smart enough to try to hide it. Now trying to hide um, from uh, eternal, immortal, like God is maybe not the smartest strategy, but at least he knew this isn't something I should be proud of. But here we go, a few generations later, five generations later, um, within the same chapter of Genesis, we see humanity goes from not only murdering people unjustly to murdering people unjustly and bragging about it. He says, you know that mark that God put on Cain? You know, wives of Zillah? or wives of Lamech. Um, I wonder what they said about him when he wasn't around, by the way. Anyway, um, he says, you know, wives of Lamech, you know that mark that God put on Cain and how his revenge is sevenfold? Well, I've killed so many people, my revenge is 77-fold. Um, the first polygamist, everyone. And, and if you're still wondering, like, what God thinks about all of this, um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 22, will actually mock Lamech. So if you're like, you're being kind of harsh on the guy, just following in the example of the Lord Jesus. I think it's very good to mock sin um, and to love sinners. What Jesus says in Matthew 18, 22 is um, he's asked, how many times should we forgive somebody? And his answer to that, how many times should I forgive someone when someone wounds me or strikes me? What, what should I do about that, Jesus? And he says 77, 77 times. Um, this would be the moment if you're watching The Office that Jim looks into the camera like, 77. Uh, what Jesus is doing there is he knows this story in Genesis. It's no random accident that in the context of forgiveness for small transgressions, his answer is 77. What he's saying is that Lamech, he thought he was so tough. Like, I killed more men than Cain. Like, I was around back then. He wasn't tough. He was an insecure man that tried to mask all of his insecurity by using and abusing women. He went out and killed people unjustly. And you know what? If you really want to be strong like Lamech thought he was, why don't you go around and in the same way he was vicious, why don't you go around and have grace and forgiveness 77 times and show true strength. But this idea is lost on Lamech. He thinks true strength is um, on revenge and on vengeance and pushing other humans down, not on forgiving and healing and lifting others up. 
And so Jesus is like, whatever you do when someone wrongs you, don't be like Lamech. Do the opposite of that guy. So when it comes down to how many people should I marry, do the opposite of Lamech. When it comes to what do I do when someone wounds me, do the opposite of Lamech. Do the opposite of Lamech. Don't kill a man for striking you. In fact, true strength requires forgiveness and grace. If you want to be as strong as Lamech thought he was, forgive 77 times. But it's all lost on Lamech. This guy, he thinks the world will be made right through taking justice into his own hands. You know, the Bible will actually say, what do you do when someone strikes you? See, Jesus' call is actually very radical. The Mosaic law will say, here's, here's what you do to um, make restitution when someone strikes you. This guy goes way off the reservation. And the point is, he's taken justice into his own hands. He has re- redefined good and evil on his own terms, just like our first parents, just like you and me. And so while we can mock Lamech all day long, I think we should be careful um, that we, um, I think it's fine to mock Lamech so much as we can realize, I think we all have this in us. And, and, and maybe you don't have multiple spouses, but maybe your pride expresses itself in other ways. And so while we can all laugh at Lamech, I think we should laugh at ourselves too and come to a place of humble humility and repentance because he's not so different from us. And so even as human culture is progressing in the city, you've got humans themselves are kind of devolving. They're becoming less and less what they were made to be. So the city is this place of great good, but also great evil. Um, there's violence, and there's, there's guys like Lamech there. Like, what's going on? And, and I would submit to you the reason that we see this tension of great good and great evil is because there are image bearers in the city. Lots of them, in fact. Um, that's really the essence of what a city is. Uh, cities come in different shapes and sizes. Um, I doubt that Kane City looked much like Concord or Oakland or San Francisco or London or uh, Tokyo or any of the cities that we know today. They probably didn't have skyscrapers and buses. Um, but the Hebrew word translated city, really the essence of what that word's referring to is a fortified space. So somewhere with clear borders where people cluster together and live in close proximity with one another. Um, That throughout human history has been kind of the core of what we mean by city. Um, So so a city is where you have a large concentration of humans. And what that means is by definition, what you get in a city is a greater concentration of image bearers than you would otherwise have in a rural area. And that comes with great advances in the culture. Because remember what we saw on page one of the Bible. Humans have been made as God's images in the world. That we are created um, to reflect the creativity and love and justice and kindness of God um, as we um, rule the world in such a way that causes everything to flourish. And so humans are, by our very nature, designed to create, to cultivate. And so all of this art that we see coming out of the city, all of the agriculture we see coming out of the city, all of the tools and industrial skill and sciences that we see coming out of the city, this is what happens when image bearers are unleashed on the world, particularly when you put a lot of image bearers in close proximity with one another and they work together and accomplish more than they could otherwise accomplish. And and this isn't just the story of the first city. We'll see this uh, in another city in Genesis chapter 11 at the end of the year. Um, But we've seen this in our own city where in this region of the Bay Area, we've been home to some of the greatest technological advances the world has ever seen. When you get image bearers together, image bearers tend to create and to cultivate because this is a sign of what God has made us to do. 
And you don't have to be Christian to do that. You simply have to be made human. This is what it means to be a human being. And so Christians should be the first to understand why good would come out of a city, that there's all of these image bearers there. But at the same time, it's the fact that you have so many image bearers together that also explains the great evil in the city. Because we saw page one that God created us in his image, but then we saw a couple of chapters later um, that we have been broken by sin. We are broken image bearers. The image of God is not lost in us, so we can still create things like the iPhone um, and this microphone I'm speaking with and YouTube on which we are currently streaming things. But, but we are a fractured image. We are a, a broken image. And so we use the good things we create like an iPhone for great evil, where we um, call people and talk down to them where we um, create destruction, where we um, submit and pass lies off to the population as whole. See, uh, the Christian worldview should understand why there's great good in the city, but also why there's great evil, because we have all been broken by sin. And what we said a couple of weeks ago is sin has broken us holistically. So it's not just our relationship with God that's broken, but cut off from a relationship with God, Cain and all the other humans since um, that have moved into a city, they kind of come together and try to do for themselves what God was supposed to do for them. And so they create more efficient means of agriculture. Let's try to rely upon one another. But the problem is, it's not just our relationship with God that's broken, it's our relationship with one another that's broken. And so when you put people in close proximity with one another, they fight. Brothers get into a fight. Sometimes it ends in murder, oftentimes in anger, which Jesus is going to be like, hey, same root, guys. Um, people strike one another and wound one another. And then some people like Lamech will come along and be like, hey, this doesn't seem right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take justice into my hands and just kill everybody so that there can be no more wounding and hitting and sinning. And it'll just be me and my couple wives left over. There's great evil in the city because there are humans in the city. And humanity, ever since the fall, have been um, bringing the stench of death into God's good world ever since. Now again, this is the tension of Genesis. We're image bearers. We have potential. We can create good. The world is not as bad as it could possibly be. But we are broken. We are flawed. We cannot help but fight and bite and devour one another. And that's exactly what we see in the city. And so this isn't just the story of the first city. This is the story of every city because every city is fundamentally the same. It's a place where um, the human condition is magnified because of the concentration of the humans there for good and for evil. So the city is a place of great good and great evil. It's a mixed bag. So to return to our question then, um, is the movement towards urbanization good or bad? Some of you are like, this is a trick question. Yes, that's how to answer it. Is the move towards urbanization good or bad? Yes, it is good in the sense that um, to follow God's cultural mandate on humanity, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to cause it to flourish, cities are a very um, uh, efficient means of doing that. You can do things with other humans that you couldn't do on your own. And in fact, you can't be anti-city because the story of the Bible ends with Jesus and the city that he builds coming down to the earth. 
So the Bible's pro-city. The Bible is not anti-city, so it's a, it's a good thing in one sense, and yet it's also a bad thing, because apart from Jesus, all of us are broken, and so whatever structures and systems we build at best are going to be flawed, and at worst are just going to fire up our flesh to kill one another. This is why I often say, and I'll probably get some emails for this, but this is why I often say Christians should be the first to have a category for systemic injustice. Where if you have broken humans creating structures together, how would we assume that the sin in us doesn't somehow come out of us in the structures that we're building? And so the the Bible has this category for, man, urbanization, it's a mixed bag, y'all. It's a good thing. It's what God designed us for, but we've been marred by sin. And so you're going to see great good in the city, but you're also going to see great evil in the city. And so the question then becomes, how do Christians, how do we respond to this? And there's really um, three major ways that Christians throughout history have responded to cities and cultural centers. Um, and, and so I want to just quickly survey them for you uh, so that we can think about how we're fitting into this and is our response biblical. The first way that Christians have tended to respond to the city is that some Christians reject it. And this is in your notes on the worship guide online if you want a review of this. But option number one is you reject the city. Um, Some Christians seeing the evil um, that comes when humans get together and build culture together, they've chosen to withdraw from the city altogether. Um, This would be like the desert monks in church history that kind of withdraw from the city. Like, you people have issues. We're going to go out here and just pray and be with Jesus. Um, a, a more modern example might be the people that look at California and say, you've lost your flipping minds. We're moving east to Montana. Now, now, I thought that might get a laugh. Maybe that was a little too close to home. Let me say this. There can be godly reasons to move to Montana. There really can't. But if you leave Ca- the Bay Area, and go, if I could just get away from the city and move out there, then I'll be free of the sin. You're going to be disappointed real quick. Uh, Because the sin problem is not in the city itself. It's in the humans, and there's just a greater concentration of us in the city. But the humans are, wherever you go, there's a human there. And you have enough sin in your pinky finger to ruin your country fantasies like that. So, So it If you're in the process of moving to Montana right now, the Lord bless you as you go, make you a blessing. What I'm saying is we should not flee the city thinking, if I could just get out of the city, I'll get away from sin. Do you see the distinction that I'm making there? Um, Because if you do that, not only is it unrealistic, um, I would also submit to you, you're going to miss out. Um, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. When I graduated from college, I got out of here as quick as possible, as fast as possible. Um, I moved to a small town in the Midwest where our bragging rights was we had a target. And, and here's what I'll tell you from that experience. Uh, if you leave this place, you're going to miss out on the agriculture, the arts, the sciences, like the, the things that make the city unique and cunning edge. You will miss out on those things. Now, some of you are like, I've had quite enough of the arts and the sciences of the city. I'm good to go. Okay, I, I'm not going to argue that point too hard, um, but I'll submit that for those that found that interesting. Here's what I will say. Um, more importantly, the Bible will say is if Christians flee the cities, we will miss out on the mission of God. Um, because, what did we say? Cities are a place where there's lots of image bearers clustered together. That means that the harvest is plentiful here. That there's people that God loves in this place that don't know Jesus that need to hear the good news. 
Now, I'm not saying that's not true of the small town I moved into um, after college. In fact, I'll say it was in Iowa. I don't know why I was hiding that uh, piece of my story there. Um, I met a, a pastor friend now in Iowa through Converge, and um, he's giving his life to planting churches in towns of less than 5,000 people. And I think that's awesome. People everywhere need Jesus, y'all. Like, there's a big enough world for us to spread around and be on mission everywhere. So I'm not saying that people in rural places don't matter. What I'm saying is if all Christians flee the cultural centers for the urban places, how are people here going to learn about Jesus? And what a mission opportunity we're leaving behind. And so God may call you to Iowa. He may call you to Montana. God bless you as you go. But don't run from this place thinking the grass is greener if God has called you to be here. Because what we see in the book of Acts is that the early church moves into the city, preaches the gospel in the city, and reaches people in such a way that goes on to impact the world. And that's our legacy. If we would just get in the game. And so it doesn't make you a Christian if you reject the city. I think you just miss out if you reject the city. And so um, that, that's my case for, number one, maybe not being a great option. Um, but then that leads us to number two. Uh, some Christians, realizing that there is good in the city, realizing there is opportunity in the city, stay in the city, um, and, and rather than reject it, they receive it. They take the city just as it is, full stop. Um, they look at the advances in arts and architecture uh, and uh, food and um, they look at all of these things and say, man, culture is producing all of these great things. Humanity must be on this upward axis towards progress. And so they begin to conclude if culture's saying it, it must be good. And so they just receive anything that's coming out of the culture-making machine that is the human city. And see... Here, here's what I'd say to that. Like, if the idea is um, cities always produce good, human culture is always moving towards progress, I'd say, yeah, just like Lamech, right? This is the daddy of all of the artists, scientists, and architects, or agricultural folks in town. And yet, as the human story is developing, it's also devolving at the same time. And so, for the folks in the receive camp, they tend to, um, if the folks in the reject camp miss the good of the city and only saw the evil. Folks in the receive camp tend to um, see the good but miss the evil. And, and, and so you'll see this most often, kind of the most obvious place in kind of mainline Protestant denominations that take on kind of all the morality and all the culture around us, and, and they just try to sprinkle a little Jesus on top. And, and, and so they'll, they'll, they'll look at things like Lamech and say, oh, Lamech, he wasn't a polygamist. He you know, he just, um, he had a lot of love to give. And Jesus says to love people, right? How should we sit in judgment over Lamech? You only love one spouse. He loves two. If anything, he's twice as obedient as you are. And this is basically the logic that goes on. Um, and, and here's what I'll say, because I, I could go on and on about this. Um, what I will say is, if you embrace the ways of the city more than you embrace the way of Jesus. Um, if you um, allow the city to cause you to look at God's word and what Jesus has said with skepticism, and go, good grief, I can't believe Jesus said that. If he were here today, he'd want a do-over. The second you begin to do that, it becomes very obvious whose disciple you are. 
And so this is the option that I think it's not only missing out, it's particularly dangerous. And you see it because the folks in this camp, the mainline Protestant denominations, the fruit of this movement tends to be they sprinkle a little Jesus on top for a while, and then they end up denying Jesus' name even in the end. And so this idea of reject, I think you miss out. This idea of receive, it really kind of puts you in a different faith position where culture is God and Jesus has to get in line behind the culture. And culture's moving forward and Jesus just needs to get in line behind him. And neither of these folks, I would say, are very good options. Because in the first option, you miss out on culture, you miss out on the mission of God. And the second option, we all become like Lamech and we celebrate it, saying, look at how far we've come. Look at how many people we've killed, how many people we've slept with. We are so great. Neither are a very good option. Um, and, 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 and this is kind of the world we live in today. Um, you could almost... Um, this might get me in trouble, but you could almost kind of draw political parties from those two. Reject it or receive it. And the Bible gives us a compelling third option. You don't have to reject the city all out. You don't have to receive it all out. There's a third option that we see in the person and work of Jesus, and that is to redeem the city. What this means is um, you find what's good in human culture and you connect it to its proper ends. And, and so, for example, King David will take the lyre that was invented in the text here, and he will use it to praise God. He will use it to sing God's praises, and the Psalms will say, do more of that. Take the lyre, take the harp, praise God's name. We don't know if Jubal loved God or not, but we do know that you could use what Jubal created for great ends. Um, similarly, the people of Israel will, um, they will uh, take the tools that Tubal-Cain built, or created, and they will build the temple and the tabernacle where God could dwell among them. What we see in the story of the Bible, particularly in the person and work of Jesus, who is a carpenter and works with tools, is that it doesn't matter who invented this stuff. If the stuff is good, it can be used for good purposes. And so to redeem the city would to be on the lookout for what's good. Um, to not take a posture of skepticism, which is so often the case in church, that we take a posture of skepticism towards the world and say, I don't know if we can have drums in church. That's what Van Halen does. We don't want to be like that here. ACDC has electric guitars. We can't do that here. And if you're not laughing right now, it's because you didn't grow up during the worship wars or live through them. So we, we don't want to have this skeptical posture towards the world because, like, can I just say this? Don't try to be more spiritual than the Bible. The Bible looks at instruments that are created by people and says, hey, you know what? Let's use that to praise God. And so we're going to do that at the end of service day. We're going to take guitars and drums and we're going to shout God's praises and it's going to be awesome. We're going to follow in the footsteps of Israel and Jesus and all God's people that would follow in that way. And so... Um, you look for what's good in the culture, and then you connect it to its proper ends. So, so Van Halen's like singing about girls, um, which the Bible would say there's something lovely about a loving relationship, but you know what's even better than that is the love of God. And so let's connect it to its ultimate end. Let's write some of the most creative music. That's why, like, it pains me sometimes when churches are the places of the worst art in town. Um, what I love about our church is Pastor Phil and the team here have some of the best art in town. Um, where some of the stuff he's put on, yeah. I'm like, I listen to that in my car. I think that's cool. I'm not embarrassed to invite my friends to church. Like, it's a, it's a cool gift that God has given. 
And we're able to point and show the ultimate expression that better than crowd surfing at a rock concert, which I have done, is lifting your hands in praise to the one who made everyone in the room and is receiving your worship through Jesus Christ in that particular moment. So we take what's good from the culture and we point it to its proper ends so that the world might look at us and say, hey, you guys got something going on over there. They might see how we use the guitar. They might see how we use our iPhones. They might see how we uh, use, depending on, on how Baptist you are, wine and say, you're enjoying that in a way we'd love to. But we are not enjoying that all the time. We have ups and downs with that. You guys seem to, like, I don't know what you think about wine. Um, what I will say is that Jesus enjoyed wine in a perfectly sinless, loving, godly way. And, and what if we could look at him and say, wow, that's using it, right? That's what the church is supposed to be. That we're to take what's good and we point it to its proper ends. Now, um, now, I'm not saying with this that we don't have a prophetic voice. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 will say, um, to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but to expose them. Um, so there is a time and a place where the church has to have a prophetic voice to stand up and say, this is evil, this is injustice, this cannot go on any longer. But we must do it in a way that comes from a redemptive posture, that doesn't look at the culture in a grouchy way, that's upset at the culture, that's angry at non-Christians for acting like non-Christians. We must do it with the heart of God. One of the verses, I just want the Lord to work deeper and deeper into our system here. I'd love our church to be known for John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It does not say God was so angry with the world that he sent Jesus down there to blast them all. In fact, it's going to continue on to say, man, if, G if God just wanted to judge the world, he wouldn't have sent Jesus because the world is doing a good enough job condemning itself. But God so loved the world. He sent his only son to show there is a better way. And that's got to be the church's prophetic voice that says, we love this city. We are here for this city. We, we are for you. And it's because we are for you that we are saying these things. Because we want human flourishing here. And when you act in such a way that destroys human life or destroys human flourishing, people are missing out. And we love you too much for you to miss out. And so we have come to show a better way. This is the mission of Jesus. And please hear me on this. We have to do it in a way that says, I'm not disturbed by your messiness. Like, I would just love it if we had a church where the, the broken and the gnarly would just feel comfortable, free to come in here and hear, and hear about Jesus. And, and I don't know what it's going to take to do that. Um, Maybe it just takes God bringing them. Maybe we're ready. I don't know. But what I will say is that in the person and work of Jesus, you see someone who stands tall on the truth. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I got those things wrong in the beginning. Let's reinvent it your way. You've progressed way past me. He stands tall on the truth, but he does it in a way that sinners and broken and hurting people that aren't living in line with that flock to him and feel loved by him. Because he does it with a redemptive posture. He doesn't do it to judge or to be crusty or to blame them for everything that's gone wrong in the culture. 
somehow people could see in the personal work of Jesus that even as he uh, had a different vision of human flourishing than them, he deeply cared for them. And, and I would love it if people would say, yeah, Pharaoh is a John 3.16 church where, man, I, I don't get their morality sometimes, and I, I think they're kind of backwoods fools on some of this stuff, but it's so clear that they love me. And, and I can't deny that they seem to be more alive than I am. I just, I don't intellectually know what to do with it. And so I'm going to keep coming and relating to these people and learning about it because this is the mission of Jesus. He comes among us in our messiness. He's not disturbed by our messiness. He moves toward us in the mess. So we can't say, you have to clean your life up before you come in here. You can't come in here dressed like that or with that person. That's not how Jesus operated. He moved toward us in our mess. He moved toward us and he showed us a vision for a better way with grace and truth. And he not only gave us a vision for a better way. Folks, here's what we can't do. This is all stuff we can do. What Jesus then does is he not only shows us a better way, but he dies to give it to us as a gift. And and that, if you can believe it or not, that is what this text is ultimately about. Because no amount of Good advice can ultimately fix our broken, sinful condition. We need to have something happen to us. And that's what we actually see at the end of our text here. So so let's look at it. Verse 25 says this. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What we're seeing here is the first city, it's a mixed bag of good and evil, but the overall flow of the Genesis narrative from Genesis 3 on is the spiral downward. Um, Where we saw in Genesis 3, we go from a marriage fight to in Genesis 4, um, Polygamy, where we go from at the beginning of Genesis 4, murder and covering it up, to the end of Genesis 4, murder and bragging about it. And though there's some good technological advances along the way, humans look less and less and less like we were made to be. But then in verse 26, something finally changes. You have the birth of this child named Enosh. And, and I know in our culture, names might not mean a whole lot. Like, you may or may not know what your name means. In the ancient world, your name was identity. It was important what they called you. And the name Enosh means weakness. Here's the point in all this. Humanity is moving east of Eden. We are spiraling downward in our sin. We are getting farther and farther away from God. And while there's some cool toys and trinkets that we're inventing along the way you begin to get the sense that humanity is not going to last much longer. We're going to kill each other if God doesn't intervene. And people move into the city in hopes of safety. It's so violent out there. Maybe I can move into the city and find safety here. But what they find in the city is violence in the streets. There's wounding. There's hitting going on. There's this crazy dude named Lamech running around carrying out vigilante justice. And, and, and so they move into the city saying, maybe the arts can save us. Maybe the um, sciences, maybe these things, if we can just pull our resources together, can fill the God-shaped hole in our heart. But none of it works. In fact, the very place that was promising safety to them delivers murder to them. 
the very place that promises um, you can be like God, you can fill that God-shaped hole in your heart. When we get to Genesis 11, we'll see in the next city, it fails on that promise. It takes them in the opposite way, that by trying to fill that God-shaped hole in your heart, you're missing out on the one true God who can. And so after all of this failure, in verse 26, there's born a child and they name him Weakness. Can you imagine if that's your name? Hey, would your mama name you? Weakness. She had high hopes for my life. They named the child Weakness. But here's the thing. It's because they realize that all this city building can't save us. They realize we can't fix ourselves. Technology, entertainment, marriage, sexuality, urbanization, all this development, it cannot take away our sin. It can make our sin look different. It can express it in new forms. But it cannot take away the fundamental problem. And so at the end of this long and painful line of five, now six generations of building this city and hoping and hoping, but not finding rescue, finally someone says, we're going to name the child weakness. Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop trying to fix ourselves. We're going to call on the name of the Lord. We're going to ask the creator of all things. This is like the one thing we haven't tried. We've tried everything to fix the sin problem, but we haven't asked him to do it. And so they name their child weakness. And at that time, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And revival breaks out. If you look at Genesis 5, I'll encourage you to read it this week. It's kind of like the Hebrew phone book. You'll see a very long genealogy. The point is this, though. Look at the numbers. Human life continues. Human life goes on. People live meaningful and good lives on the other side of this. A revival breaks out in Cain's city because people begin to call on the name of the Lord. And how does God... We're going to see in Genesis how God begins to work that out. Next week, we're going to look at Noah's Ark and what God does to um, save a people then. But the way that God ultimately answers the call that began in Genesis chapter 4 is by sending a baby whose birth that we just sang about. Um, and this baby will come from the line of Seth and Enosh, a.k.a. weakness. And in what looks like weakness to the world, this baby will grow up and save the world. In a moment that looks like defeat on the cross, Jesus will accomplish his greatest victory and it's through the offspring of the one called weakness that we finally get one to crush the head of the serpent. To undo the work of all of the sin in this place. And the point in all of this is this. The way that we get renewal in our day and in our city is the same way they did. By calling upon the name of the Lord. We just know his name now. Jesus. That we have to recognize that we are like Lamech in this story. We're not the people calling on the name of the Lord. That's not, we're not born in that condition. We're born like Lamech, where we are prideful, we are boastful, we brag about our sin, we use and abuse others. And we might do it in a way that looks very religious, we might do it in a way that looks very irreligious, but fundamentally, we are all like Lamech. And Jesus is the anti-Lamech. He comes and says, if Lamech is on this forever vengeance spree, I'm on this forever redemption spree. 
I'm here to forgive and to show love and grace and mercy because what I know that Lamech never figured out is that love, grace, and mercy have the power to melt the hardness of the human heart. And I know that by dying in your place for your sins, I can give you a new heart that can actually be an agent of renewal and redemption into all of the cities and places I send you until I come back and bring the perfect city down that you were truly made for and we can laugh and sing in that city forever. And so what I want to do is I want to close with a quote um, from one of the church fathers named Augustine. Because he wrote, some of you are laughing, you're still remembering his other comments from earlier in the series. That was an off day for him. Um, Augustine wrote a book called The City of God, where he's trying to help us think about cities and how do Christians interact when we're citizens of the city that we read about in the last book of the Bible. But we're living in these citizens that are ruled by the spiritual powers of darkness and humans that may or may not love Jesus. How do we live in this space between these two cities? And here's what Augustine says, and I just want to close with this. He says this, speaking of the heavenly city that is to come, who can measure the happiness of heaven? where no evil at all can touch us, no good will be out of reach, where life is to be one of long, loud, extolling God. God will be the source of every satisfaction more than any heart can rightly crave, more than life and health, food and wealth, glory and honor, peace and every good, so that God, as St. Paul has said, may be all in all. He will be the consummation of all of our desirings, the objects of our unending vision, of our unlessening love, of our unwavering praise. In the everlasting city, there will remain in each and all of us an inalienable freedom of the will, emancipating us from every evil and filling us with every good, rejoicing in the inexhaustible beatitude of everlasting happiness, unclouded by the memory of any sin or sanction suffered, yet with no forgetfulness of our redemption, nor any loss of gratitude for our great Redeemer. And surely, in all that city, nothing will be lovelier than this song in praise of the grace of Christ by whose blood all there were saved. On that day we shall rest and see and see and love and love and praise. For this is to be the end without the ending of all of our living. That kingdom without end, the real goal of our present life. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, called upon his name and said, I am like Lamech. I bring brokenness into this world. Would you redeem me from my brokenness? And that is the day you are headed towards. And just as Lamech couldn't stop seeking vengeance, Jesus will not seek, stop working for your redemption and grace. And when you know the love of God, it frees you up to love the city that he has placed you in until the day that we arrive in that great city. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, I... I thank you that you are a better city builder than king. Um, I thank you that unlike me, you can, you can build something that has not an ounce of unrighteousness in it. Um, and I thank you that you're not just a great city builder, but you're a gracious city builder. You look at a sinner like me, 
and all the ways I'm like Lamech, and all the ways that I've sinned against you, and all of the ways that I am proud and twisted inward on myself, and you don't look at me to condemn me, but you look at me with love. Jesus, thank you for being just completely on another level from us. Thank you for being a God of redemption. Um, I pray that you would take the truth of your redeeming work and apply to each and every heart as we sing your praises right now. Um, I pray um, that you would make new Christians this morning. And for those that already know you, that you would awaken us to the hope that we have not out your redemption. That you never give up on us. That you never fail us. Would you lead us into that hope and cause us to be a church that walks out of this place more hopeful and more uh, of a redeeming presence in our city, just like you are perfectly in our lives. We love you. We ask all these things in your beautiful name. Amen.